Welcome to the Episcopal Church of the Redeemer's Sermon Podcast. The readings appointed for this sermon are from the book of Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 through 5, Acts chapter 19 verse 1 through 7, the Gospel according to Mark chapter 1 verse 4 through 11, and Psalm 29. Open our minds, warm our hearts, but also bend our wills, for we seek to hear your word. I got some questions. I got some questions about these readings. There is so much here. The nature of Trinitarian theology, a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins. Why then does Jesus go? Wasn't he without sin? Or was he under the power of sin until his early 30s? Or was this just about him making a statement about his full humanity or his connection to ours? What are we to do with this down-to-earth Christology? We claim Jesus as being in the beginning, in the beginning He was one with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. Jesus, with God, before the world ever was. And what's up with the voice from heaven? Calling out, this is my son, the beloved, with him I am well pleased. Does everyone else hear it? Is it only Jesus who hears it? And where did that dove come from? Does everyone else see it? Is it white with a a little olive branch in its mouth? Or is it flames of fire coming down with the Holy Spirit? Whew, I got questions. I got questions, but today I want to talk to you about John the Baptist. Specifically, his clothes and his food. You know, like the Times Person of the Year articles. Have you ever read a piece of scripture and thought, well, that's weird. I wonder what that's all about. Well, that's how I feel about John the Baptist. This odd character who we often view as just this kind of lonely weirdo standing out in the desert, screaming into the void. Make way, repent of your sins, you brood of vipers. But that's not just who John was. John was actually quite popular. He probably was person of the year that year. He was so popular, in fact, that his notoriety and message gained a following. We see them described as his own disciples. John was very well known for speaking out against the establishment, which eventually got him killed. Remember Herod's daughter, who asked for his head on a platter as her birthday gift? I mean, what happened to asking for a pony? John is something so much bigger than we often talk about. 
He's not just a lonely voice crying out in the wilderness. He's the one who's standing on a brink between desolation and consolation, pointing to Jesus as the one who bridges the chasm between heaven and earth. If you haven't heard, John is kind of a big deal. And our tradition holds that he and Jesus knew each other, or at least knew of each other. Long before the meeting we hear about in our gospel lesson for today. In Luke's account, they are cousins via their mothers, Mary and Elizabeth. Both men grew up well acquainted with Torah and lived as faithful Jews all of their lives. They lived in the same geographical region and ran in similar circles, you know, all the misfits. And each had their own unique role to play in bringing about the kingdom of God. From them, we gain a greater understanding of our role in God's dream for the world. So what's up with the camel's hair smock and the belt around his waist? This odd attire is not just a fashion statement. It points to a clue about what John represents. For in John, we see the culmination of salvific history, the Ketuvim, it's called. And we also see in John this pinnacle of prophecy, the Nevi'im. Many who listened to John's message questioned whether he might be the new manifestation of the prophet Elijah. But John said, no, I'm not Elijah. Interesting, then, how they wore the same kind of clothes. I looked at 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. They answered him, he was a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. He said, it is Elijah, the Tishabite. What John wore points to greater truth. He appears on the surface to be one of the prophets, but he himself says that it's not just about what he wears or, or what he looks like that is important, but what he proclaims. That is what is the most important. What is his prophecy? Repentance, forgiveness. Make way for God in your heart, in your mind, in your body, in your soul. Make way for God in your life. And you know how they say you are what you eat? Well, I've always been so curious about why the gospel writers found it necessary to share with us what John ate, locust, and wild honey. What a strange detail. I know we don't often take time to dig into little things like this, but it's my job. So I went down a rabbit hole for several hours, and let me just save you 
some time on research, there's almost nothing written about why he ate locust and wild honey. So I'd like you to just, just go with me on this trip. Just imagine for a moment what these foods could be saying to us symbolically about John the Baptist. What if John's food is a symbolic intaking of both the blessings and the curses that are present in our gospel? What would it mean for us if John consumed the plague brought upon the empire to help make the people free? What if the locusts represent the hives that consumed the crops of Pharaoh before the exodus, showing God's power over nature as a reminder to even the most powerful people on earth that there are some things that even they cannot control? And what about this wild honey? What are we to make of this sweet delight? I like to think of it as the nourishment that offsets the curse. A symbolic drink representing the promises of God. The place of peace and security where war and hatred cease. A land flowing with milk and wild honey. If it is true that you are what you eat, John is showing us that a person who points the way to God is also someone who acknowledges that we must take into ourselves both the blessing and the curse. We must, uh, we must acknowledge it all so that from us can come a proclamation of forgiveness. In the tradition of the church, we call this Sunday the baptism of our Lord, the baptism of Jesus, but we don't often talk about the man who baptized him, John, the baptizer. This dynamic and I think over, overwhelmingly intriguing biblical figure asks us to stand with him in the wilderness between blessings and curses and to remember the message of the prophets and to point the way forward, the way to Jesus that leads to life and health and peace. I find it fascinating that the church holds the tradition of both the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus in our own baptismal rite, often hidden by familiarity but steeped in rich symbolism, our baptismal service shows us this entire arc of salvific history of God's people through the exodus and on to the life of Jesus. If you want to look it up later, it's on page 304 of your prayer book. It brings us through this entire arc of understanding that in order to live life in a new way in Jesus Christ, in order to be 
marked by the Holy Spirit in baptism as Christ's own forever, we first have to start with that baptism of John, a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. I think I've shared with you all before that in our family, we, uh, we don't just celebrate our, our birth into the world days, we celebrate our baptism birthdays. And uh, Constantine had his last week, his ninth baptism birthday. And we always eat cake and sing a song, but we also look at it as an opportunity to talk about our baptism, which hopefully baptisms that happen here at church give you an opportunity to do the same. And we ask uh, our little boys, what is baptism? What, it, what is it for? What does it mean to you? And Teal said that for him, at least right now, it's about, it's about being part of the family, the church. Arlo said, I don't know what the point is, but I know you put that cross on my forehead. <laughs> yes, both of these and many more reasons. Our baptism is a symbol of our participation with God and the prophets who came before. It is our part in the story of salvation history. It is our belonging to one another in Jesus. And it is an identifying marker that reminds us of our role in making God's dream a reality in this world. At dinner, we talked about how each of us were baptized so differently. I was baptized on St. Andrew's Day to a band of bagpipers, so that's probably why I love the Celtic uh, service so much. And Chris was baptized in Hawaii outside. No one was wearing shoes, so he understands holy ground. Teal in a big marble font in a grand cathedral reminding us of the traditions that we hold. And Arlo, thank God he's not here, buck naked, fully immersed, with a whole cruet of oil poured over his head to remind us of the aesthetic beauty of our humanity and, and how we experience God in this world. But we recognize also that each of our baptisms had two things in common, two very, very important common threads, covenant and commitment. A reminder that we are a part of something so much bigger than just ourselves. And also a commitment to serve God in this world in a new and different way. As a people set apart to proclaim love and peace and blessings, knowing that the curse is there and saying we are moving beyond that into light and hope and joy. Baptism, my friends, should change you. It should make you different. I saw, um, I saw this written up a long time ago, but I remembered it this week. And I wanted to share it with you. Um, it's, it's from, you know, uh, modern um, therapy. For, uh, it's a psycho psychological perspective. It said, if you feel like you hate everyone, 
eat something. <laughs> if you feel like everyone hates you, take a nap. And if you feel like you hate yourself, take a shower. And I thought about that this week, and I thought, what if we look at it through a baptismal lens? What if we read this as Christians? If you feel like you hate everyone, take communion. If you feel like everyone hates you, take a Sabbath. And if you feel like you hate yourself, remember your baptism. Amen.